What's up, everybody? Welcome to our second sermon review on the We Got Now podcast. We're going to try and get on every Thursday and just review uh, and recap the sermon that was preached to the youth students at Hardin Baptist Church from the night before. All school year long, uh, we will be in Revelation. And so on this podcast for these sermon reviews, we'll be reviewing, we'll be recapping. And and in some ways, I'll be re-preaching in podcast form what I preached last night at Revelation. Revelation is one of my favorite books. It it gets pretty heavy at times. It it gets pretty deep and, and dense at times. So I like to I like to start it off by just kind of asking a lighthearted question and that question is what would you do were there a zombie apocalypse? Kind of a fun question, right? And and maybe a scenario that you've kind of thought about for for fun. What would you do in a zombie apocalypse? Well, I'll tell you what I would do. In a zombie apocalypse, I would survive that thing. I am going to uh, put everything I learned from Rick Grimes to use. I'm going to get my axe. I'm going to get my hammers. I'm going to get whatever I have around me, whatever I need, in order to fight off these zombies. If there are, if there's a zombie apocalypse, right? And the zombies might get me, but they're not getting me without me putting up the fight of my life. And you listening, my guess is you would react the same way. Were there a zombie apocalypse? And so I think the point here is is that if the end of the world comes via a zombie invasion, well, we're going to live like there's a zombie invasion, right? Like we're not just going to turn up our TVs a little bit louder, kind of ignore everything going. If a zombie is beating down my door, I don't really care what's on my TV. I don't really care what I had I had scheduled that afternoon. At that point in time, the only priority that's that's going to be on my mind is I need to survive this zombie apocalypse. Now, I think we can praise God because there's not going to be a zombie apocalypse anytime soon. At least, I'm pretty sure. But that doesn't mean we should get too comfortable. Because while we might be safe from any zombie invasions, the book of Revelation paints for us a picture that I think ought to terrify us quite a bit more than that of zombies. That's because the world, newsflash, is not going to end at the hands of zombies. However... It is going to end. And that end, the end of the world, may be way closer than we ever could have imagined. In fact, what I think we see in Revelation, the the passage we're even going to look at in this podcast episode, is that the end is at our doorstep. The end is actually here. Not just near, but I would argue here. And so as fun as it, as fun as it is to, to think about a zombie apocalypse, the reality is, 
is that the end of the world is actually something we ought to be thinking about because we're living in it. And no person who knows they're living in the end of the world has the privilege to, well, just pretend like they're not. We don't just turn our TV up a little louder. We don't just watch our favorite TV show. We don't just turn on the game and act like it's not the end of the world. If we know that the world is ending, if we're living in the last days, then we're going to act like it. We're going to live like it. And so in our passage here in Revelation, that's what we're going to see. We're going to see that the end is here. And if the end is here, well, we really only have one choice. We got to live like it. Revelation chapter 1, we'll cover verses 1 through 3 in this episode, says this. The revelation of Jesus Christ, which God gave him to show to his servants the things that must soon take place. He made it known by sending his angel to his servant John, who bore witness to the word of God and to the testimony of Jesus Christ, even to all that he saw. Blessed is the one who reads aloud the words of this prophecy, and blessed are those who hear, and who keep what is written in it, for the time is near. Wow. The title of this book, it comes from the very first line, the very first verse, the revelation of Jesus Christ, the revelation. That's why we call this book Revelation. Now, please take note. The book is Revelation, singular, not Revelations, plural. There's one revelation. There's not multiple revelations. It's one. So the book is called Revelation. It's the revelation of Jesus Christ. Now that word revelation, it comes from the Greek word apocalypsis, which is where we get our English word, of course, apocalypse. So the genre of this book we discover in the very first words of it is apocalyptic literature. And if I ask, you know, what was a What's apocalypse mean? What do we think apocalypse means? We might cite something that, you know, could have happened in The Walking Dead. That's because many of us maybe just assume apocalypse means the end of the world, and, and, and that's true, but it's only partially true. The word apocalypse more accurately refers to something that has been or is being uncovered, is being made known, And it often has to do with future events, but it doesn't have to. And most significantly for our study in Revelation, apocalyptic literature in Scripture, inspired by God, that refers to that which is being uncovered or that which is being made known about how God is going to intervene in human history both now and in the future. So it's not all about future events, like it's far off, it's at at the, at the... It's way in the distant future. Apocalyptic literature can, and I believe in Revelation, is being played out even now. And furthermore, if it's in Scripture, we got to realize this. This isn't a prediction. People have predictions about the end of the world. People have predictions based on Revelation. Revelation is not a prediction. 
It's not meant to be used as a prediction. It is a prophecy. It's not a prediction. Revelation is a promise. This is what is happening. This is what is going to happen. Also notice verse 1 says that this is the revelation of Jesus Christ, which God gave him. So we know, if you're familiar with Revelation, that a guy named John is going to receive this revelation. But according to verse 1, it's not John's revelation. It is Jesus' revelation. I mean, it's clear. It's the revelation of Jesus Christ. It belongs to him. God the Father gave Jesus this revelation. And so it's his. It belongs to him. And because it belongs to him, I think, I think we, can, we can just pause. We, we can be thankful because it belongs to Jesus, but he's not going to keep it all for himself. He's going to share this revelation. And of course, first he's going to share it with a guy named John. But in order for this revelation to get to John, verse 1 says that Jesus made it known. So he made this revelation known by sending his angel to his servant, John. And so this gets a little bit complicated, but I do think it's important. Follow, follow this train of communication in Revelation. You have God the Father who gives this revelation to Jesus. And then Jesus sends an angel to make this revelation known to John. Okay? Now let's just pause again and let's notice how Jesus chose to make it known to John because this is crucial. This is the key that unlocks how to understand Revelation, in my opinion. Again, verse 1 says, Jesus, here's the verb, made it known by sending his angel to his servant, John. And so we've already established Jesus has communicated this revelation to John by sending an angel, but I want to focus on how else the Bible says Jesus communicated this revelation to John. I use the ESV translation of the Bible, and it's really hard to see in the ESV. But the Greek word for made it known in verse 1, I think could more accurately be translated to the word signified. And so if we fill in the word signified for made it known, this is, this is what the verse could read. Jesus signified this revelation by sending his angel to his servant, John. In fact, if you're listening and, and you're a KJV Reader, if you look at your Bible, that's exactly what it says. It uses the verb signified in verse 1. Jesus signified this revelation by sending his angel to his servant, John. And so what's the big deal? Why is this important? Why make a big deal about words? Well, it's very important if you know what the word signified means. So let me just give you a quick definition of signified. Here's the definition. The meaning or idea expressed by a sign as distinct from the physical form in which it is expressed. The meaning or idea expressed by a sign. So, so the root word of signified, not hard to discover, it's signal or sign. And it literally means, by definition, to communicate something in signs. And we, we, we see this every single day. We see if you ever get in your car and you drive, you're going to come across a traffic signal. 
And if that traffic signal is green, you know automatically that that color green is signifying to you or is communicating to you via a sign, via a signal that you should go. That's what it means to, to signify something, to communicate by signs, to communicate by signals. A guy named Sam Storms, who is an amazing, amazing scholar of Revelation, he understands that verb to make it known or signified in verse 1. He says it means to communicate by means of symbols or signs or pictures. So here's the point. Here's the big deal. Here's the key to unlock how we interpret Revelation. When Jesus sent an angel to make this revelation known to John, verse 1 says he did it through signs and symbols. And so what this means, here is the big point. The book of Revelation is not meant to be interpreted literally. It was signified. It was communicated by signs which means the book of Revelation is meant to be interpreted symbolically. And I get it. I I know that in some spaces, to some people, maybe a bit of a, a hot topic, a hot take. And, and I think it's funny when, when people get on people like me for not interpreting the book of Revelation literally. That's what they think. I should do, interpret the book of Revelation literally. But what I, and maybe that's you who are listening, but, but listen, that's exactly what I'm doing. I'm simply opening the book of Revelation. I'm reading verse one, the first verse of the book, literally. I'm taking it absolutely literally up to this point. And because I read verse one literally, which tells me that Jesus communicated this book symbolically, I then read the rest of the book the way Jesus literally just told me to read it, which is symbolically. In case you're you're not sold yet, I want you to see exactly where John gets this phrase, made it known in verse 1. It actually perfectly mirrors a phrase in the Old Testament book of Daniel. So before we go to Daniel, just picture that you're a first century Jew who receives this book of Revelation. You don't have the New Testament yet. Maybe, maybe you've gotten to read a few letters. Maybe you've gotten to read a few of the Gospels. But the Old Testament is, is your jam if you're a first century Jew. And you know your Old Testament. And that phrase in verse 1 made it known. John is going to essentially steal the exact phrase from Daniel. And if you're a first century Jew who knew his Old Testament like the back of your hand, you would have known he's getting this from Daniel. So, so just some context. Daniel, he's an Israelite. You probably know this if you're a listener. Uh, he, he was exiled to the nation of, of Babylon. There's a king in Babylon. His name is Nebuchadnezzar. Good luck spelling that. And at this point in time, he's not a very nice king. He's not a very good king. And as Daniel is in Babylon, God sends Nebuchadnezzar a vision through a dream. Okay, and so, so here's kind of what, how the dream unfolds. Nebuchadnezzar, he, he sees this big statue, and it's made of iron, it's made of clay, bronze, silver, gold. When all of a sudden, in this dream, a stone comes out of nowhere, it gets thrown at this statue, and this big, powerful statue 
gets demolished by this small little stone, and the stone then turns into a great mountain. And so Nebuchadnezzar in Babylon finds Daniel, and Daniel is able to interpret this dream for Nebuchadnezzar. And he tells them, hey, Nebuchadnezzar, that statue in your dream, it represents the kingdoms of the earth. And that stone in your dream, it represents the kingdom of God. And one day, the kingdom of God is going to demolish all the kingdoms of the earth. So here's the point. It wasn't a literal statue or a literal mountain in Nebuchadnezzar's dream. Daniel knew this. He interpreted Nebuchadnezzar's dream symbolically. The statue was symbolic. The stone was symbolic. And now look, look with me. Hear with me what Daniel says right before he interprets that symbolic dream. Daniel chapter 2, 27 and 28. Daniel answers Nebuchadnezzar. He says, No wise men, enchanters, magicians, or astrologers can show to the king the mystery that the king has asked. Because the king is asking Daniel to interpret this dream. But verse 28 in Daniel 2 says this, But there is a God in heaven who reveals mysteries, and he has made it known, that should be ringing bells. If you're a first century Jew, you would have this memorized in your head. And he has made it known, Daniel 2.28 says, to King Nebuchadnezzar what will be in the latter days. So here's the point. In Revelation 1.1, John takes the phrase, made it known, directly from Daniel. Because he wants us readers... To understand something. Just like Nebuchadnezzar received a symbolic vision that was meant to represent something else, a divine truth, so is Revelation. Just like God made his dream known to Nebuchadnezzar through symbols, so he has made Revelation known to us through symbols. And so in other words, in verse 1 of Revelation, John is telling us we should interpret Revelation the exact same way Daniel interpreted Nebuchadnezzar's dream, which wasn't literally, but symbolically. That's how Revelation was written. And that's what John is saying, hey, this is how you should read it. And so this is how I read Revelation. On this podcast, this is how we are going to understand Revelation. We're going to interpret the book the way I believe verse 1 says we're meant to interpret it, which is symbolically. I think many people, they suggest that we should interpret Revelation literally until we're forced to interpret symbolically. But I think think it's completely the other way around. According to verse 1, I think we should interpret Revelation symbolically until we're forced to interpret it literally. And here's what we got to understand, just in case you're not on board yet. Just because something is symbolic and not literal does not make that thing not literally true. Here's what I mean by that. Just because we interpret Revelation symbolically does not mean that Revelation isn't inspired, inerrant, fully trustworthy, You see, just like Nebuchadnezzar's dream, the symbolism in Revelation is meant to point us to divine truths. These divine truths are just communicated and therefore interpreted symbolically. 
And the entire reason we, we can know this with confidence is because verse one says that Jesus made this revelation known by symbols or he signified this revelation to us by sending an angel to John. It's pretty awesome. But I want us to go back to that train of communication because it's not quite done yet. Maybe you remember it. We've already seen the father gave this revelation to Jesus who sent an angel to signify it. We understand that now to John, but that's not it. Because now we need to notice the reason Jesus gave this revelation to John. This might surprise you. This might be not what you thought or was taught. But this revelation was not given to John for John's sake. This revelation was given to John for your sake, for my sake. Verse 1 says, The revelation of Jesus Christ, which God gave him to show to his servants the things that must soon take place. God the Father gave this revelation to Jesus so that Jesus would show his servants the things that must soon take place. So Jesus receives this revelation from the Father. He sends an angel to make it known to John, according to verse 1, so that John could then record everything he sees in a book so that all of God's people, all of God's servants could then receive it. In other words, the revelation, yes, was given to John, but it was given to John so that it could be given to us. I think we often wish, man, I I wish I could experience what John experienced. That would be cool. But the whole point of John experience, what he experienced was so that you and I could experience what he experienced. This, this is a revelation from God the Father to Jesus who sends an angel to John so that we, the church, so that you, so that I could receive this revelation. So this might be a hot take, but if, if I'm right about this, and I think, I think this is pretty clear in the text, this means that the title of the book, The Revelation to John, is a really, really bad title. <laughs> This was not a revelation to John. The title of the book should be the revelation to the church. John was simply the instrument that Jesus used to pass this revelation on to you and to me, to his church. So it it isn't primarily to him. It's not his revelation. It's primarily to us. And so as as often as we think, "I I wish I were John, I wish I got to experience what John experienced, don't be jealous of John. He got to experience what he experienced so that God could communicate this revelation to you. He saw an amazing vision, but then it was gone forever. He recorded it in a book by God's grace and by God's providence so that you would have it forever. If anyone should be jealous of anyone, John should be jealous of of us that we get this manuscript of revelation on our desks on our laps, in front of our eyes, whenever we want. And what's even better is we can totally trust this revelation because verse 2 says that through the Holy Spirit, John bore witness to the word of God and to the testimony of Jesus Christ, even to all that he saw. So the whole point is that this revelation is your revelation 
and is completely trustworthy. God the Father had you in mind when he gave it to Jesus, who then gave it to an angel, who then gave it to John. And so every word you read in this book has been sovereignly and graciously passed down to you by God himself. If you don't think that's cool, I don't know. I don't know what to tell you. That is pretty stinking cool. And so clearly God cares a lot that you and I receive this revelation. So it is worth asking, why go through all the trouble, God? Why do you care so much that we receive this revelation? Well, here's where it gets even cooler. Because according to verse 3, God cares so much that we receive this revelation because he is a good father who wants to bless us. That's why he cares to get this revelation to us. He wants to bless us. Revelation 1.3 says this. Blessed is the one who reads aloud the words of this prophecy. And blessed are those who hear and who keep what is written in it for the time is near. And so the reason God cares so much that this revelation gets symbolically passed on to John and then recorded for you is because he wants you to receive this revelation and be blessed because he knows The time is near. That's God's urgency in passing this revelation on to you and me. The time is near and he wants to bless us. And because the time is near, you and I, we need to do a few things. And if we do those few things, God promises to bless us. But before we get to what those few things are that we need to do, let's just ask the question, what does it mean that the time is near? Some people might say that The Bible is referring to the fact that God is coming back soon and the time is near means there's just not much time left to go. And I believe that's true. But I don't believe that's what John meant in verse 3. I think we have to interpret verse 3 for the time is near in relation to the way Daniel talks about in the latter days in Daniel 2. So remember with me that John has just directly referenced Daniel in verse 1. And if you were a a first century Jew, you would have known this. He's already told us that Jesus made revelation known through symbols in the same way that God made Nebuchadnezzar's dream known through symbols. So if we're reading Revelation in light of the whole Bible, and we are, Daniel should already be fresh in our minds when we get to verse 3. And John knows this. And so here's what I believe he's referring to when he writes, for the time is near in verse 3. See, in Daniel, God was communicating to Nebuchadnezzar a vision that would take place in the latter days. Verse 28 in chapter 2 literally says, There is a God in heaven who reveals mysteries, and he has made it known to King Nebuchadnezzar what will be in the latter days. So in Daniel, when interpreting Nebuchadnezzar's dream, Daniel tells us, This dream is going to take place in the latter days. Not now, not in Daniel's day, in the latter days. And then in Revelation, after just telling us to interpret Revelation the same way Daniel interpreted Nebuchadnezzar's dream, he then tells us in verse 3, for the time is near. And here's the point, I think. What was in the latter days in Daniel is now for the time is near in Revelation. In other words, what God communicated in Daniel as something that will happen in the distant future, God is now communicating in Revelation as something that is happening 
very soon, and even right now. In fact, I think verse 3, for the time is near, is another way the Bible is trying to communicate to us that we are in the last days. In other words, the end of the world is no longer sometime in the distant future. The end is near. Ever since the death and resurrection of Christ, we've been living in the last days. So as we study Revelation, we don't have to ask, are we living in the last days? We've already been told in verse 1, yes, absolutely. Because here's the catch we got to understand. The end does not start with Jesus coming back. He is going to come back. The end doesn't start with Jesus coming back. The end ends with Jesus coming back. In other words, the last days don't begin when Jesus comes back. The last days are over when Jesus comes back. We're in the last days. And these days are running out. So don't interpret verse 3 as, oh, okay, that means Jesus is, is coming back soon. That is theologically true, but that's not the point. The point is that today we're living in the last days and the end is not just near, but it's actually here. It's at our doorstep. What Daniel calls the latter days is now here. So God's plan for the end of human history, it's already beginning to unfold. It's already playing out. So no wonder God made such a big deal about getting this revelation to us, right? Because clearly we need it if we're going to know how to live in the last days. And so back to Revelation 1-3, that's why he says blessed is the one who reads aloud the words of his prophecy. Blessed are those who hear and who keep what is written in it. Because the time's near. Because we're in the last days. If the last days have begun, then, then that means there's a few things we need to do according to verse 3. And if we do these things, God promises to bless us. Now that word blessing, it makes us a little bit uncomfortable because it gets a little bit misconstrued in our world today. We tend to think that if God blesses us, that's referring to him giving us a comfortable life, maybe a lot of money, everything we've ever asked for. And that's actually not it at all. Blessings don't refer to outward possessions. Blessings here in verse 3 refers to inward possessions. God wants to bless us, but to be blessed doesn't mean that you will receive a million dollars. You might, but to be blessed by God means you'll receive something way better. And if you have it, you know it's way better. You'll receive peace that surpasses all understanding. You'll receive joy that cannot be shaken by circumstances. You'll receive steadfastness in your faith. You'll receive patience. You'll receive love. It means you'll receive the gifts of God that don't come outside of you, but that live inside of you. That's what it means to be blessed. Unfortunately, a false gospel known as the health, wealth, prosperity gospel has ruined our idea of what it means to be blessed by God. But don't misunderstand that word in verse 3. God wants to bless you. Don't be uncomfortable by that. But he wants to do it in a way that blesses you inwardly. He wants to do it his way. 
And so here in the last days, there's a few things we can do if we want to be inwardly blessed by God. First, he promises to bless those who read aloud the words of this prophecy. So if you want to be blessed, that's one thing you can do. You can read aloud the words of this prophecy in Revelation. You, you got to remember here, first century, they wouldn't have had Bibles to pass around. And so they would have had one person with one manuscript of Revelation in front of the church reading. Of course, that's one of the main functions of what preachers and pastors do today. And, and so God promises blessings on those who do this. I think this is hilarious, honestly. There's a, there's a research that polled pastors on, on what book they least want to preach through. Unequivocally, Revelation. They also polled the congregation, what do you most want your pastor to preach through? Unequivocally, Revelation. Why don't preachers want to preach through Revelation? Verse 3 says, you will be blessed if you do. Second, God promises to bless those who hear the words of this prophecy. So just another thought, if pastors deprive their congregations from hearing Revelation, they're depriving them of blessings. So I got to be honest, I'll just be completely transparent. I'm a, a little bit scared to preach through this book. But not only do I want to be blessed by reading it aloud, but I want my students every Wednesday night to be blessed by hearing it. But that blessing, both for me as a speaker and for you as a hearer, it comes with a stipulation. This is the third thing we must do to be blessed. If we want to be blessed, we must obey the words of this prophecy. This may remind some of us about what James says about being doers of the word, not hearers only. So the point is, is it's not going to do me much good if I read and preach the words of this prophecy and then go on and live my life unchanged, however I want. Similarly, it won't do you much good if you hear the words of this prophecy and then go on unchanged and live however you want. Verse 3 clearly says we must study this book, we must hear this book, and then we must go out and obey this book. That's how we will be blessed. It's not enough just to know we're in the last days and to understand some things that might happen and will happen soon. The point is we must seek to let this book of Revelation change our lives. It can't just fill our minds. It has to fill our hearts. And so we, I've chosen to do this book, but I have no interest. I just want you to hear my heart on this podcast episode. I have no interest in having arguments about Revelation, about the tribulation, about the millennium, about any of this, any of that. I have a sole interest in coming to this book week after week, reading it, hearing it, and then going forth and obeying it. That's the only way I would ever preach revelation. Not to fill our minds, but to fill our hearts. And so if the end is not just near, but if the end is here, the point is, we got to live like it. We have to obey this book. God promises to bless us with peace, with joy, with steadfastness if we do. So I want to invite you week after week, come to this podcast and hear from this book. Maybe get a Bible out. If you have a, have a Bible nearby, get a notebook, get a pen out. 
and soak in this book that promises blessings on those who read and who hear it. And then let's get ready to obey this book at all costs because the time is near. The end is here. And so let's read this book and go live like the end is here.